In order to stop Bitcoin today, every government in the world would have to agree simultaneously that we're going to shut down the Internet to stop Bitcoin. We're all going to shut down the Internet. Then they would have to, in a coordinated fashion, identify where all 200,000 of those downloads of Core went. They'd have to shut those down, make sure that they were never started ever again. Because the moment you turn the Internet back on and one of those nodes is live, boom, the whole thing repropagates. And that's the power of decentralized systems. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on Alex Stanchik. Alex, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. For sure. Uh Alex, I want to know more about your background. So I know you're on Cafe Bitcoin all the time, every day. Um, basically, you're the host of that, from my understanding. Um, what's your background? How did you like get into the space? What did you do before Bitcoin? Sure. Okay. So coming out of school, um, I don't have the dis. I, I say it. I don't have the disadvantage of a of a. Um, uh, an official pedigree to education. I came out straight out of high school, right, right into the military. Uh, did that for a couple of years, got out, went, went into the IT industry, uh, was uh, a net, basically a network administrator um, for a, a handful of years. And then uh, after that, I moved down to Panama, Central America, uh, started working in the gold industry, ran a, a gold fund, co-managed for about eight years prior to, to doing the deep dive into Bitcoin. And then uh, started talking to Corey Clipson, who's the CEO of Swan. Uh, I guess it would have been in the beginning of 2021. And I shortlisted Swan as the company I wanted to work with in Bitcoin because at one point I came to the conclusion I needed to switch, you know, from gold to Bitcoin. Bitcoin's just better. I mean, we can talk more about that if you want. Um, you know, for all the gold bugs out there, I was a gold bug, like, like, you know, through and through did it, you know, was involved in that for over 14 years and came to the conclusion after a series of kind of deep dives on different things, having to do with Bitcoin, that Bitcoin is just better. Don't hate me. I'll, I'll explain why if you want, <laughs> but I am now working as a, a managing director with Swan. Swan private is the, the division that I work with. And so Swan private caters to high net worth, ultra high net worth. People who want to in businesses. I mean, we do business accounts, treasury accounts, um, and just uh, people who kind of want a very high touch concierge, somebody to walk you through everything. You get as Swan Private Client, you get access to our bench of experts, unlimited time. You know, if you want to talk about about anything, entry strategies into Bitcoin, what your allocations should look like, um, how to deploy over what time frame, how do you do custody. What are the advantages and disadvantages of multi-sig, inheritance planning, all that kind of stuff. Like we're here to kind of step-by-step walk you through all of it. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm curious to dive in more on your experience with gold. When did you like originally, like what time period, I guess, like what year did you like get into the gold industry? And then like what originally like attracted you to the idea of gold? Sure. So um, I had in my – when I was working in, in IT as a director of IT for – I was the director of IT for the largest aerospace union in the United States. And it was a – I don't know. I felt like it was a decent-sized operation. Um, but during that time, 
uh, I had on the side launched a company and we were developing peer to peer video over IP. So the whole idea was, you know, we would, um, you, you do it in a peer to peer model, kind of like a, a BitTorrent or something like that, where instead of doing it all from a CDN, you know, you've got thousands of peers out there who have a copy of the movie on your on your platform and you're just getting little bits of it from lots of different people. So it was solving a bandwidth issue and reassembling the video. And so it was near DVD quality video um, streaming. And we were super early, way early. Um, so early in fact that we had at one time, I, I remember landing a, a demo with one of the executives from Netflix. And I can remember walking into their office. This was down in, it was in, Oregon somewhere. I want to say Portland or something like that. Anyway, went in there and uh, showed them our demo and they kind of laughed at us and they said, well, we don't do that. We, we send DVDs in the mail. And I'm like, I'm trying to tell them like, this is the future. This is where it's going. We were really early. And anyway, we sold out of that and moved down to Panama. And while I was down in Panama, I met these, these guys, a fa one family used to hang out at our house. So we had this house kind of overlooking the ocean and up on the side of a mountain in the jungle. And they used to come over on the weekends and we'd stay up really late and drink wine. And, um, you know, this guy was Australian. So, you know, one night I was just asking him, like, what do you do? You know, he's like, well, I'm a bullion banker, mate. And I'm like, what, what is that? Explain this to me. I've never heard of this before. So then he started explaining gold to me. And then he started explaining inflation to me, which up until that point, I had considered myself a semi savvy business person. Didn't know shit. Right. Like totally orange red pilled by this guy. Am I allowed to guess? I just did. I just totally red pilled by this guy and uh, just starting to learn about inflation and all these things. And that's kind of when I went down the gold rabbit hole. Um, that's how I got started in that industry. Anyway, that's how very cool. Do you like I know a lot of gold bugs. I mean, I, I like the idea of gold. I think it's I think like you said earlier, like Bitcoin is basically a better version of gold. Do you buy into like the idea that like the gold price is suppressed or do you think that that's just kind of like something that gold bugs say to make themselves feel better about like, Hey, it's not mooned yet. I, I, I'm, I don't know the answer to this. Uh, I'm curious to know your thoughts. You know what? Um, is it suppressed as in, is it, is it like intentionally kept down by the government? I don't know the answer to that question. Is it manipulated? Absolutely. I mean, that's not, that's not a conspiracy theory. There's, we can. There's a long history of fines that have been handed to the bullies, the biggest bullion banks over the last decade or so, where they were active and actively manipulating the gold price. This is not like a a conjecture or or a tinfoil hat thing. I mean, there's there's fines, <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, manipulated, absolutely. Suppressed, don't know. That's a little harder to prove. Do they have an incentive to suppress it? I'd say, yeah, they, they, I think they do. Like, is that proof that they're doing it? I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah, that's a good point for the fund that you had, or you uh, partnered with, what was like your strategy? Like when you guys had investors or LPs in the fund, were you buying like physical bullion or were you buying gold miners or was it like a combination? What was, what was your strategy there? Yeah, so it wasn't really what we what would be considered a managed fund. It was just basically um, a, a long physical gold fund. It was very simple. We would have someone come in. They'd send us money. We'd buy physical gold. We'd stick it in a vault. We'd sit on it. When they redeemed, we would sell the gold or send it to them. Like you could redeem for cash or gold. 
Yeah, very simple. Like we weren't trying to achieve any kind of alpha over the price of gold or anything like that. It was just for people who wanted to to buy physical gold and didn't nice. want to sit on. So there there come there's a threshold that you reach at which you may not want to keep take delivery and put the gold in your house, right? Yeah. Like if you're buying millions of dollars worth of gold, do you really want to keep that in your house? Probably not. There's some point at which institutional custody of gold starts to make more sense from a security perspective. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess yeah. you could even argue it from like the small holder perspective too. If you buy ten dollars worth of gold, is it worth it to ship it to your house? I mean, or maybe I don't know. Yeah, I guess it depends on why you're buying it. You know, yeah. there's a lot of different reasons why people buy precious metals. Yeah, <laughs> precious metals, folks in general. I mean, they're very prepper-minded. You know, they're like, let's prepare for all potentially bad scenarios. So there's a lot of different reasons why people do it. But in size, you know, you start to get to that point where. You might want to yeah. have an institutional uh, vault kind of situation. That makes a lot of sense. I've always kind of bought into the idea of like, if you're an extreme prepper, would it not be better to hold like ammo, guns, and like extra water and food rather than gold bars? Do you buy into that idea? Because I feel like if if the world gets that bad and like something like Bitcoin stops working because the internet goes out and the power goes out, we're probably going to have bigger problems than like holding the yellow rock and trying to trade it. Like I'd rather probably have bullets or, or food or, or yeah. water at that point. I don't know. What are your thoughts? No, on I that? think it's a great question. I, I, my answer is all of the above, right? Why not have all the above? Because, <laughs> all right. So let's just think about it for a second. If, and, and by the way, I don't think the chances of these scenarios occurring are very high. Like when I think about these things, I always think, think in terms of, all right, well, let's put this on a, on, a, on a scale of probabilities. What is the probability that we're going to have, you know, total war and EMP strikes and the whole grid goes down and, like, we're all cavemen again, right? What are the chances? I think pretty small. They're bigger now than maybe maybe in the last 20 years, but they're still pretty small, right? Less than 3% maybe. Um, but – if those events did occur, I would want to have all of the above. You need water, you need food, you need shelter, you need defense and protection, right? Which is where the bullets come into play. You, and you need a means of transacting too, because not hopefully you can transact with some humans who are still human versus the people who, you know, the, in a scenario like that, I do think the masks will come off. I think there's a large, larger percentage of the population than people realize who will start to do really things that we would consider not civilized right now in a situation like that. And, in, you know, you need a way to deal with both. So the bullets are for the people who are not civilized and then the, the silver is for the people who are, <laughs> or maybe you're trading in coffee or whatever, right? Like, I don't know. Small yeah. percentage chance of any of that unfolding though. <laughs> yeah. Good points. I didn't mean to get down the uh, prepper rabbit hole, but that was fun, fun little, uh, side conversation um yesterday was the and we'll probably release this later this week but we're recording it on wednesday but yesterday was genesis block day for bitcoin and i think it'd be great for you to talk about like why is bitcoin special and how bitcoin was conceived in a very unique way sure um a great topic because that Genesis block was the very beginning, basically, of Bitcoin's history, right? Is the very first transactional block, um, and that's kind of how it all started. 
and everything from then is a time chain. It's a record, right? And we were talking about this the other day on our show where it's like there are certain things that, that people find about Bitcoin to be attractive. Sometimes people are attracted to the, the, that it's not confiscatable. Like we had Tone Vase talking about that. Um, and then there are, uh, there are specific aspects of Bitcoin that I think are, are super attractive to different people. The first and foremost, to me anyway, is that it's decentralized. This was a big one for me. And the reason why is, is that I always figured that Bitcoin would just be shot off any day by the government if they wanted to. That was my biggest, like I was aware of Bitcoin since 2011 and like a knucklehead. I didn't really take it seriously until probably 2019 when I started really investigating it. But <clears throat> coming from the gold world, I don't, you may or may not have heard of this thing called e-gold, but it was one of the first sort of digital currency attempts backed by gold. There was a guy in Costa Rica and that guy got raided by the government, uh, Black Hawk helicopters, whole deal. I think that guy's still in jail. Like I, my memories of that thing happening kind of colored the whole Bitcoin thing for me because I was like, they're just going to shut it down, you know, at any time that they want. And it wasn't until I started, well, it was 2019, right? After Bitcoin had run up in 2017, supposedly the bubble popped. I was thinking to myself right after that, we're never going to hear from Bitcoin again. This is Pet Rocks. It's Beanie Babies. It was a, it was a, a fad. It's done, right? 2019, I'm looking at the charts. I'm thinking this thing's consolidating. It's going to run again. And that's when I was like, it really bugged me. I was like, why is this still here? And that's when I started investigating that question. And the answer that I came up with was, well, and this was after, I don't know, probably a couple hundred hours, approaching a thousand hours of digging into it. I realized, well, it's still here because they can't stop it. They can't shut it down. It's too far too decentralized at this point. Maybe at one point in the beginning, they could have killed it like a baby in the cradle. But now there's no way. Uh, I saw there's one site that tracks the the downloads of Core Bitcoin Core, oh, well over two hundred thousand times it's been downloaded. Um, currently live, we know of well over fifteen thousand live reachable nodes on the internet, not including. Uh, I think there's a bunch behind Tor that we're not you know sure whether they're reachable or not. Then there's the ones on satellites in orbit, and in order to stop Bitcoin today. Every government in the world would have to agree simultaneously that we're going to shut down the Internet to stop Bitcoin. We're all going to shut down the Internet. Then they would have to, in a coordinated fashion, identify where all 200,000 of those downloads of core went. They'd have to shut those down, make sure that they were never started ever again. Because the moment you turn the Internet back on and one of those nodes is live, boom, the whole thing repropagates. And that's the power of decentralized systems. And I could kind of grok that a little bit because of the peer-to-peer -peer thing that we were doing before. The whole point of peer-to-peer -peer is, is that it's decentralized. You can't shut it down. And what happened with that one guy with Eagle was they knew it was one guy and it was they knew where the servers were. They knew how to stop it. And that's the amazing thing about this idea with, with the Genesis block and Satoshi. We, we still don't know who this dude is. He released it to the world as open source, a gift to mankind. Right? It's mind-blowing. So there's the decentralized aspect. There's the finite supply aspect, which is absolutely critical to honest money. That's a critical component, in my, in, my, in my opinion, of honest money. There is the unstoppability of the transfer of value. 
right? So you can send any amount of value globally at the speed of light at almost no cost and not a single person on the planet can stop you from doing that. That was one of the things that the light bulbs that went on for me when I was in the gold industry that caused me to realize Bitcoin is the answer. It's way better than gold, right? I'm not – and understand, if you're a gold bug, I mean no offense. I'm not trying to crap on gold here. Gold for thousands of years of human history was the hardest money and the most honest money mankind has ever known until Bitcoin. And we can talk more about that if you want to. And then there's the unconfiscatable aspect of it. Literally, so every asset in the world is correlated in one way except for Bitcoin. And that one way is it's confiscatable. Every asset on the planet is confiscatable, whether it's gold, silver, stocks, retirement accounts, money in the bank, land. Pick one. There's every single asset on the planet is confiscatable except for Bitcoin. It's the first time in the history of the human race this has ever occurred. It is an evolutionary step for mankind. It changes everything. Um, and then finally, it's unchangeable, essentially. Like some people are like, well, you can just change the code. Well, you can, sure, but nobody's going to play with you, right? This has already happened. Like Bitcoin's open source, right? You and I today could take a copy of Bitcoin, modify it in some way, and <laughs> we, could, <laughs> we could call it what we want, right? This is Joe and Alex coin or some ridiculous thing, right? And, and and say it's our own Bitcoin. Well, true, but nobody's going to come play on our Monopoly board. And if nobody's playing on our Monopoly board, does it even matter? No, I would agree, argue it doesn't. So the network effects of Bitcoin are the reason why it's essentially unchangeable. So that's a good place to start. Yeah, I think those are all like super interesting points. I didn't realize the eagled guy was... I guess arrested or however you described it. That's very interesting. Yeah. And I guess you made a great point. Like the reason Bitcoin, they probably did. I wonder if there were like internal operations, like within the U S government early on thinking like, okay, this Bitcoin thing's interesting. It's used for dark web transactions. I wonder if they like actually tried to shut it down. And then they were like, actually, we don't know how to do this. Do you know, like, did that happen? Or do you think that happened? that I don't know? It wouldn't surprise me if it was looked into. And I think at this point, you know, more and more people within the government are coming to the conclusion that it, they can't stop it. I mean, you've got U.S. senators testifying before Congress saying exactly that. We can't stop this thing. We might as well get on board. And there's an anecdotal story. I wasn't there, but you've heard of this guy, Jason Lowry, I'm sure, right? I think he's – a colonel or something in the U.S. Space Force. Anyway, was summoned to the White House. And this is a third-party story I'm hearing. So I wasn't there. But apparently he did a, a had a conversation at, at a Bitcoin club at MIT, And he was, he was relaying an account. Again, third-party. I wasn't there. But the, the story is that he was summoned to the White House to brief them on Bitcoin – explained what it is to them and the response from the U.S. officials were, okay, well, what should we do? Should we just buy half the Bitcoin? And his response to that was, well, you can't. Like that war has already been lost. I'm here to help you negotiate your terms of surrender. Now, again, I wasn't there. I don't know if that's actually what was said or not. But, man, that's pretty pretty substantial to me. 
Yeah, it's pretty interesting. That would be a crazy story. Honestly, I kind of believe it. I could see Jason saying something like that. I like Jason. He's, he's pretty cool. Um, and he has some interesting, smart ideas, I think. Um, going off the idea of, like, government shutting it down, I also – I think Swan, either Corey or someone at Swan, like, coined the term, like, intrinsic minority, or they used it in application to Bitcoin and the United States. Yeah. And it, the idea is, like – or can you explain that idea and, like, why that's important? Sure. So Corey talks about this thing. It's the race to avoid the war. And the objective there is if we can get 10 million Bitcoiners in the United States, it creates an intransigent minority, at which point it will be impossible to stop it from a legislative or a sort of cultural push standpoint. And I think he's going off of this idea where there are certain things that happen in society if there's a small enough percentage of people who basically won't move on an idea. It's like, look, this is this is it. I'm dying on this hill. If I think it's around 3.5%. Then the rest of society just conforms around them because they're a rock basically. These guys are not going to move. <laughs> so either we somehow like completely get rid of these people, which is 3.5% is a lot of people. <laughs> um then, you know, we just got to figure out how to work with these guys because they're just unmovable. And that's what that's what he's talking about when he says the race to avoid the war. And um, by Bitcoiner, what I mean by that is not somebody who's bought. So if you listen to like the head of the CFTC, he came out the other day and he says something like 25 percent of Americans have bought or invested in crypto. Right? That, that could be anything that could be like, a you know, somebody bought ten dollars worth of Dogecoin. Right? That doesn't mean you're a Bitcoiner. What is a Bitcoiner? A Bitcoiner is somebody who understands what Bitcoin is and realizes this is the future of money for mankind. And they're not going to just like sell it or give up on it or whatever. Like These are people who are thoroughly entrenched in this idea. Yeah. I mean it's, it's interesting. I've always thought of the idea of like governments banning Bitcoin as like kind of strange because – and I want to get your thoughts on it. I mean, obviously, the governments did, or the U.S. government did ban private ownership of gold. But in my mind, that was more to, like, stimulate the economy because gold was what tied the dollar to gold. So to break that peg that they had already set, they needed to create more dollars to get the, you know, the system going. Whereas Bitcoin's not tied to the dollar, right? They can stimulate the economy as much as they want. They don't need to ban Bitcoin because it's not pegged to the dollar. What are your ideas on that topic? Yeah, those are two totally, kind of totally different things, really, because, you know, first of all, the dollar started out as being backed by gold. If you go back far enough in, in history in the United States Constitution, money was defined as a certain weight of silver or gold, right? So specie was the money. Um, and then at one point, if you, you know, kind of a little walk through history, if you look at, at older U.S., money, it says gold certificate, silver certificate. Well, what is that? It's redeemable. It says redeemable um, for specie. Essentially, you can take it to the U.S. Treasury. You can say, give me the amount of silver or gold that you owe me for this certificate, right? Where you look at dollars today, it says Federal Reserve note. What's a note? Note's an IOU. Well, an IOU what? If you took a U.S. dollar to the Treasury today and said, give me what you owe me for this, <laughs> You're not going to, you're not going to get very far with that. Right. And then, so we kind of moved to this point where, as you say, there was a confiscation, but what a lot of people don't know is, is that 
what they did with that is, is they, they, they took the gold and then they revalued the U.S. dollar against the gold. They kind of reset the currency. So it was the first time they avoided basically a default on the United States dollar. Is they And I'm trying to remember the numbers, but um, on the books, they revalued it upwards to like $35. I want to say $35 an ounce or something like that. The gold bugs in the room are going to be like, You're, this is the exact number. It's something like that. And then they used that to to basically reset the currency at the time. Um, and then moving forward in 1971, Nixon closed the gold window and severed dollar convertibility into gold forever. And then today, it's basically just a pure fiat system, meaning it's just based upon the faith and credit of the United States government. And Bitcoin has nothing to do with that. Like Bitcoin's kind of completely its own thing. And it's also for the first time – so some people, some people bring up this thing about they say, well, what there's nothing backing Bitcoin. So like I don't trust it. Okay, well ask yourself the question: What's backing gold? Gold's a base layer of money. So is Bitcoin. Same concept. Yeah, totally. I think when people say what what is backing Bitcoin, if your money is backed by something, it wasn't the best money to begin with. That's what I tweet sometimes. <laughs> well, if I, it's backed by anything, that means it's a derivative of something else by definition. Yeah, exactly. Right? What is a derivative? It means it's not the real thing. Yeah. It's derived exactly. from something else. It's like orange juice is a derivative of an orange. Yeah. Well, Bitcoin is not a derivative of anything. It is Bitcoin. That's it. Mm-hmm. But I definitely still think that that's a, a significant hurdle for a lot of people to, to jump over. Like, why do you think that's the case? And like, how do you try to explain like, okay, Bitcoin is the thing, but why is Bitcoin the thing? Well, I think it comes back to people just don't understand money and what money is. People, anybody who's studied monetary history, this is obvious. It becomes obvious over time. Because if you, if you look at all the different things that human beings have used as money in our history, it's pretty absurd the things humans have used as money. Like, Okay, there's rye stones, Island of Yap, right? What are these? These gigantic stone wheels, some of them weighing multiple tons, was used as money, right? And then you've got other societies that used, obviously, gold, silver, et cetera, things we know of. But there's also societies that use shells, right? Glass beads, feathers, sticks. Human beings use sticks as money, right? So... If you ask yourself the question, okay, well, what the heck is it then? Because some people are like, well, it's got to have some intrinsic value or it's got to have some industrial value or it doesn't have value, which is completely ridiculous because you just look at all of the different types of money we've used throughout history. What is what is exactly the industrial or intrinsic value of a big rock, a big round stone or feathers or sticks? Like it's simply empirically, historically not true. Right, so stop using that argument. This intrinsic value argument's nonsense. It's been refuted, debunked. Right? What actually gives something value as money? The thing that gives it value is humans agree. That's it. Full stop. Like if you and I were running Alex and Joe were the mayors of Alex and Joe Town. Our city was Alex and Joe City, and we decided that um, we're going to use old used truck tires as money. And we could somehow convince the population of the city that the old used truck tires actually are money. With everybody's agreement, guess what? It is money now. That's all that's required. We just have to agree. That's it. 
and so some people would come to me and you know back in the in the gold days and they'd be like well alex gold will never be money again people just don't believe in it and it's like people believe in it to the tune of 10 trillion dollars of united states value like you may not believe in it but there's enough people that believe in it that it's got a market value of over 10 trillion united states dollars go convince them of that and the same thing is true with bitcoin um yeah and then and then i don't know there's one other point i was i completely forgot where i was going with that but anyway i think you understand what i'm saying yeah no i think those are all great points i'm curious to to think like how do you think the end game for fiat is like what what's going to happen i mean like it's basically like this debt-based system which in my mind it you know it it we inflate these bubbles, but then naturally without stimulus or more money printing, the system kind of has like a strong urge to just collapse and come back in as you got to create more debt to keep the bubble going on forever and ever. How does the the dollar system or other debt-based systems end? Well, they all end the same way. If you study history, eventually they all collapse on themselves because if you have a system that must continue to inflate, I mean, eventually it just blows up. Right now, I'm not making a prediction as to when that's going to be, but they've all ended that way. And so I'm reading a book right now. It's about the Weimar hyperinflation. They had a very similar thing. You know, the Weimar hyperinflation was a nine-year period of time. The first eight years, it was not really like a phase transition. It was just high inflation. And then in the last year, it, it, it imploded. It was like a waterfall effect, right? So these things can take time. I would suggest that the United States dollar has been collapsing for over 100 years. Ever since the creation of the Federal Reserve System in 1913, it's been devalued constantly. Like, you know, they, they literally say we're targeting a one or one and a half, two percent rate of inflation. Like it's the objective of the central bank to debase the money. That's their goal stated like they're not even, you know, trying to hide it. So what ends up happening eventually is you blow these bigger and bigger debt bubbles and then you have exactly what's happening now where uh, inflation starts to run away and then they tighten the money supply and then you might calm it down for a little period of time and then eventually you have to step on the gas again. It's like brakes gas, brakes gas, brakes gas. And the problem with that is at some point, how big does it have to be to, to, to keep surviving, right? If you think back... Well, to 1999, LTCM, there was that bailout. I don't remember how big that was. I wasn't like paying attention to it back then. But and then you had 2007, 2008. How big was how big was it then to bail out the system? And then recently, I would suggest during the COVID thing, we had the same thing happen: trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars being injected into the system over a very short period of time. What happens in the next time? What do we have to inject then? Eight trillion. 20 trillion? How big does it get? And here's an interesting thing. In the, in this story of Weimar, same kind of thing. They had a bunch of runaway inflation. And then at one point they were like, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to stabilize this thing. They had one guy that came in and basically said, we're going to issue this new, this new money. And, you know, they, they stabilized inflation for a period of about a year. I think it was like a year, year, year and a half. Um, before it went into hyperinflation. 
So they kind of backed off. They were like, it's all fine. And then when they realized that the inflation rate came down, that's when they stepped on the gas big time. They printed twice as much as they had printed before, and that's when the thing imploded. So I, I see this pattern throughout history, and I'm, I'm watching it repeat now. There's a lot of sort of modern economists and macro guys who, who hate this discussion. They hate the hyperinflation discussion. They're like, oh, gosh, why do you guys talk about that? Well, it's because that's how they all end. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to think about. And I mean, even if it doesn't or if it does end in hyperinflation or if it does, but it's, you know, a decade out or multiple decades out, the dollar is still like designed to debased period. Like everyone kind yeah. of knows that everyone holds their wealth in equities, real estate, bonds, whatever. Um, they know that they can't hold dollars. In fact, I would say like the wealthiest people in the world owe dollars, right? Like they borrow the dollars and buy the assets and just wait um, or try to improve it. Maybe they can't improve it, like the business or the real estate or whatever. So it's interesting to, to think about how it will change uh, over time. But I want to dive into a, a, another idea of, of, we talked about how Bitcoin is different from crypto um, because of its decentralization and permissionless nature and openness. Um, can there be like more than one money? I know you talked about like, hey, we can all agree that tires can be money. But in my mind, it's like we had dollars, we had gold. Dollars were kind of created because gold like couldn't be transacted very easily. It wasn't very portable. Silver may, may have been like because gold wasn't very divisible, things like that. There were reasons that like we didn't all converge necessarily on one money. And there were reasons that fiat currency kind of arose. With Bitcoin, do you think there is a need for other monies, or do you think that Bitcoin will be like the one known money? I don't. I don't. So there's some Bitcoiners who think that that Bitcoin is going to be the only thing. I don't. I'm not sure that that's true. You know, that's not what's ever happened in the history of man. Uh, we've always stored value in various different things. We're still doing it today, even though there's the United States dollar. There's there's sovereign currencies all over the world. Right. And then there's derivatives of these sovereign currencies as well. So and then on top of that, you have other things, right? You have real estate, you have commodities, you have different things. All of these things to one extent or another store value. Right. So the question becomes, well, to me, if the United States dollar is the is the base of the system, sort of sort of today, internationally, the United States dollar is kind of the base of the system. And that's a legacy holdover from the days of when the dollar was convertible into gold. You know, it's like back in, if you look back and study history, you see, you know, 1944, Bretton Woods. Well, what was that? It was after World War II. All the countries of the world got together and they agreed that the U.S. dollar would be the world's reserve currency. Why? Well, because it was convertible into gold. Like if the U.S. started cheating, the countries could just turn the dollars and get the gold. So that kind of convinced the gold, the world to do that. We are in a, a period of time today in history where we're it's a legacy of that system that we've inherited from the past. And so I would suggest that if the United States dollar is continually debasing, even if, if it's 2% a year, what does that mean? Well, over your lifetime, let's say you work 50 years and you save and you do all this other kind of stuff, it's going to eat almost half your wealth just to 2%. So you have to figure out, well, what's going to survive that? Now, whether it's slow debasement or fast debasement, whether it's slow, you know, understand what I'm saying? Whether it's hyperinflation or just regular inflation, you need to find something that's going to outpace that. And in my opinion, I think Bitcoin will 
will outpace that simply because of mathematics, right? It's a finite supply. It's the first asset in the history of mankind we have ever seen that has an absolute inflation rate of zero. This has never existed before. This is another evolutionary step for mankind. These are the amazing parts of the Genesis block that Satoshi gifted to the world. And so um, I think the question becomes, well, what's going to have the highest leverage in terms of purchasing power moving through this period? I think there will be many currencies still, even when we have what we call Bitcoin hyper, hyper Bitcoinization. I think there will still be many currencies. There will be many derivatives and financial derivatives built on top of Bitcoin, many layers above, so to speak. Um, but I think uh, you're, you're going to see a massive transfer of, of value as values coming out of these U.S. denominated things. Yeah, it makes sense. So basically, you're you're thinking that Bitcoin will become maybe like the base monetary tool, whereas humans will still obviously have real estate. They still have gold. They'll still have other various assets that they may store, you know, a portion of their wealth in. But Bitcoin will be like the main tool that people use as money. Would that maybe be right not or? necessarily as money, but as a store of wealth and, uh, you know, secondarily as money. And I think there's going to be a period of time where it's not used as money so much. There are some places in the world where it's being used as money. And these are places where, you know, these people are really living kind of in survival mode, so to speak. But in the West, I don't think you're going to see it used as money until we've arbitraged away the opportunity cost of holding it. Meaning, yes, right? You see what I'm <laughs> saying? Like, you're a Bitcoiner, you're you get what I'm saying. Like, I'm not getting rid of my Bitcoin until it's well past a million per coin. Yeah. And then even then I probably won't get rid of it. I'll probably just use it as collateral. <laughs> yeah. That's right. fair. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it just depends. Like, I mean, I'm not necessarily one of these people, but I know some people literally just hold, I mean, they might have like other possessions, but when it comes to like dollars, they don't hold dollars. They just hold Bitcoin and they sell their Bitcoin whenever they need to pay any sort of dollar denominated liability. I don't know if people will start doing that. Like if Bitcoin becomes a $10 trillion asset like gold and maybe it settles or it stabilizes a little bit there, maybe that's where, you know, people will just hold Bitcoin. I don't know. Maybe that's a hundred trillion when that something like that happens. Maybe it never really stabilizes and the dollar is still like the stable unit of account that a lot of people use. But Bitcoin is more of like that long-term unit of account. I don't know how it plays out, but some yeah. interesting thoughts. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about... Swan a little bit. Um, you guys made the effort to acquire Spectre Solutions. Uh, what is that and, and why did you guys do that? Sure. So um, Spectre is one, I, one of what I think are the leaders in the space in terms of multi-sig wallets and uh, some very, very smart guys over there. And so we were sort of looking for a solution for multi-sig because multi-sig is becoming more and more an important tool for an inheritance planning. Uh, you know, the uses of multi-sig, sometimes people don't really don't understand why you would. I, I think for most people, you know, single signing device seed phrase is, is great security. Like you have to deal with the physical security aspect of that. Um, there are particular reasons why you would want to use multi-sig. One is like you have a corporate governance scenario where you need more than one signatory before you can transfer funds or assets. Um, another might be uh, a physical security concern. Like there are people, who, clients who I've talked to who live in other countries um, and they don't like the idea of keeping their seed phrase if it's a single 
single signing device seed phrase where someone might be able to get at it. And then finally, an inheritance planning where you might want to have multiple people uh, involved in being able to, you know, sign a transaction with, with Bitcoin. So we were looking for uh, solutions to help our, our private clients in terms of legacy planning, but to really anybody who wants to use a multi-sig solution. So the idea is, um, and this is coming, they're still working on this, uh, but from start to finish, you know, you open a Swan account and then we, we will show you with one click basically how to set up your own multi-sig using uh, Spectre as the as the underlying technology, which, by the way, will remain open source for the community. Anybody can use it. But we're building kind of a custom in-house um, variant of that with, which, with a much smoother UX. And the reason why is we have like I – mean, we have some great designers. Like it, uh, anybody who was at Pacific Bitcoin, like they've seen kind of what our design team does and the way they visualize things and put things together – and it's just going to be a, a really uh, a smooth experience. Yeah, no, it's it's something that I'm very excited about. I think it's a great idea. I think I support both of these companies. There's Unchained and then there's Swan. And I feel like you guys are both kind of like merging together. Like Unchained came from like the multi-sig original vault side. And right. then Swan came from the selling Bitcoin side. And now you guys are like kind of meeting in the middle doing, you know, great services for Bitcoiners. So I think it's fantastic. I'm curious, when you talk to some of your private clients, whether it's like a high net worth individual or like a, a small business or even a corporation, is there hesitancy to holding their own private keys? Like what's the, I guess, what's the gap between convincing them to hold Bitcoin? And then what's the gap between that and saying, okay, you should hold Bitcoin with your own, uh, custody. You should hold down private keys to that Bitcoin. Sure. That's a great question. You, I, I was surprised to see how many people don't like the idea of doing self custody. It, it was kind of a shocker to me because like my nature is I would rather have control of that than, ha than have a third party in, in control of it because I, I, you know, security reasons. I just, I just, I've seen, too many things happen where humans that you thought you could trust, you actually can't. And um, so at Swan, we we try to encourage people to do self-custody and we will, we are there for you. Like we'll, we'll teach you how to do that. But for people, there, there are a large number of people who are just not super comfortable with it. You know, they don't trust themselves. Um, I'll give you an example. I've, ta I've talked to one business owner I'm thinking of in particular runs a very large and successful business. But he's like, man, I, I just don't trust myself with it. I lose my car keys every other month. <laughs> it's like, there's no way I'm going to try and self-custody my Bitcoin. And so, you know, we understand that. We understand that, that you know, as human beings, we're coming from a world where we have many decades of experience with banks holding our money and stockbrokers holding our equities and our IRA custodians holding our IRA assets, our retirement assets. So it's just what we're used to. People are just, it just freaks people out. So we kind of like our, our go-to is like, look, we'll help you buy Bitcoin if you want to keep it on the platform for a little bit of time while you're learning about self-custody. We're not going to rush you. We're here to teach you. We're here to help you. And we find that a lot of people that works with. Nice. Yeah, I like that. I, I definitely feel like there's steps to like self-custody. Like it's definitely scary at first, especially if you like aren't comfortable holding a lot of money. Like 
on your on yourself or however you want to do it, whether it's multi-sig or single-sig. And especially if you're not used to Bitcoin, like there's literally like if you now if you work with like Unchained or Swan, like there's people to help you and guide you. And like if it's kind of hard to mess up, like if you're working with someone that really knows what they're doing, in my opinion. But it's scary knowing that if you're doing it on your own, you know, you can mess up. I mean, Luke Dash Jr. is a, an example of, of someone that just recently lost some Bitcoin or got hacked. Now, he wasn't using a hardware wallet or, or multi-sig or anything like that. But it is interesting to see the, the difference between, you know, custodied solutions and, and like, non-custodied solutions. Yeah. Um, and I feel like uh, FTX blowing up and potentially Binance maybe being the next one or, or at least having some issues um, or have, have encouraged many people to take self-custody. Do you think that's the case? And, and, and Oh, for sure. There's no doubt about it. Like uh, ever since, well, as you probably well know, uh, our CEO of Swan, Corey Clipson, has been out there like, you know, warning people. Corey's an interesting dude. You know, he, he like he doesn't spend all of his time like trying to find the next crypto scam. It's just that sometimes they get a little vocal and he, it causes him to look at them and then he starts asking questions and he asks more questions. And when he gets to some point where he's asked enough questions and he's come to a conclusion, he literally comes out and says, get off of this. It's a scam. And he's done that, I think, four different times last year. Every single time he was 100% accurate. Um, and as it's turned out, you know, right after FTX blew up, I started to notice a huge trend where Swan got a massive ramp up of new account activity. I'm talking like if I had to guess – well, I'm just going to guess. I don't know the exact number, but this is I, I think probably 30 times normal. And these were – many of these people were coming across saying, um, yeah, I just don't – I don't trust these other exchanges, these other platforms anymore. So that's a that was a big deal, you know. And a lot of people don't understand the difference, for example, between what we're doing and what an exchange does. If you don't mind, I'll explain it really quick. I'm not I'm not here to really plug Swan, but um, so the difference is so first of, first of all, Swan's Bitcoin only. We don't do any of the other things. So from a security perspective, in my opinion, that's a lot safer way to be. Then you've got the um, unregistered security risk that the exchanges are dealing with. I think 2022. It was. It came out to be pretty obvious at this point that most of these things are probably unregistered securities. Now, if that's true, and I think it is, then then all of these exchanges are basically making a market in unregistered securities. That's against the law. Last time I checked, right? So there's going to be repercussions to that. Um, and then the the other major difference, a lot of people don't understand. You know, there were rumors swirling around that Prime Trust, which is what Swan uses as our rails was having trouble because they replaced the CEO. I mean, it's fine. It's a regular thing. You know, sometimes you replace CEOs. It has nothing to do with the solvency of the company. But anyway, they're a, they are Prime Trust is a uh, they're a trust company and they're also a qualified custodian. A qualified custodian is a very high bar to meet in terms of financial institutions. A lot of people don't realize that. You have to go through certain audits. You have to get all these SOC to type two or whatever. I don't know what the exact terminology is. There's all types of certifications that they have to get. And it's very different from banking. Banking is where if you give your money to a bank, you're not the property owner of the bank. Uh, of that that money is not your property. It's legally belongs to the bank. It goes on their balance sheet. You're an unsecured creditor. They go bankrupt. Sure, there's FDIC, but technically, like, you know, if there was an FDIC, you're kind of screwed, right? 
Well, the exchanges are essentially operating the same way. And as a qualified custodian, prime trust is not allowed under the law to, to encumber your assets. They have to keep it separate from their balance sheet. Um, and they're not allowed to lend or rehypothecate or any of that kind of stuff. So it's a big difference. When people started figuring that out, I think that's what that's the reason why a whole ton of people are coming over to Swan, my opinion. Nice. I didn't realize the specifics behind Prime Trust. That's very interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I mean FTX was an interesting story because in hindsight it seemed fairly obvious that this random startup in the Bahamas didn't necessarily custody things correctly, didn't, you know, follow rules correctly, were basically fraudulent. And obviously, you know, but in the meantime, you know, he had Sequoia investing in them, BlackRock, I think, even invested in them. And so like, he had these big names putting their brand behind it or putting capital behind it. But in reality, it was just like some random, very sketchy startup in the Bahamas. And it's like, oh, actually, this is, you know, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you? And, what are your and the other the other yeah. super interesting thing is because a lot of people conflate cryptocurrency with Bitcoin. It's not the same, not even close, right? In the FTX situation, he literally made up his own shitcoin, backed by nothing, traded against himself to raise the value of it, and then used that as collateral to do a bunch of a whole bunch of other sketchy stuff. While at the same time, taking customers' real money and gambling with it, and then it all blew up. That has nothing to do with Bitcoin. Yeah, and that's a great point, and I can totally see how outsiders get them confused. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. But like when you're in the space and you, you deal with this every day and you understand like what Bitcoin is, you understand like what a startup is, and you see them like operating, you, it's, very, it's pretty clear. But if you're from, an out, from the outsider's perspective, it's not very clear, I guess. And right. I think those people will probably learn over time. Um, what do you think the next bull catalyst will be for Bitcoin? I, I know some people will say like, okay, the 2024 halving will be the next bull catalyst. Some people say like, hey, the Fed has to pivot or monetary and physical stimulus need to come back. What's, what's the next bull catalyst for Bitcoin? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and just being honest, I have no idea. It could be anything. You know, I used to <laughs> when I, when I was back in the gold days, I used to do a, a podcast with Jim Rickards once a month. I used to always ask him because he used to try to teach me about this, you know, this field of science called complexity theory and how complex this, complex systems work. And that basically complex systems are a ton of tiny little nodes that are all kind of reacting with each other. Like an example could be like it's an um, – a snowpack up on the side of the mountain where you've got millions, maybe even billions or trillions of individual snowflakes that are all interacting with each other, right? And it's a complex system in a certain energetic state. And once it reaches a certain level, it goes through what's called a phase transition. And a phase transition is a change of energy state. So if it's like a pot of water on the stove, when it goes to boiling, that's a phase transition. Um, when the avalanche finally reaches that certain or, or that snowpack reaches that certain energetic state where it turns into an avalanche, that's a phase transition. It's coming down the mountain. You don't know what snowflake did it. It could have been any of them, right? The point is, do you understand that the system is in an energetic state that's probably a precursor to an avalanche? That's probably more important to understand, right? It took him forever to explain that to me because we would go around and around with this. I'm like, Jim, which snowflake is it? And he's like, Alex, it doesn't matter what snowflake it is. It could be any of them. The, port, the important part is understand 
the system is in a state where it's probably going to be an avalanche. And I feel like that's where we are with Bitcoin right now because if you look at the amount of Bitcoin that hasn't moved, it's basically in what I call strong hands. Bitcoiners are holding it. Bitcoiners are, Bitcoiners are buying it. You look at people from legacy finance, they're like, who the hell's buying Bitcoin? Why is the price so flat? Well, it's because of us. Like all the Bitcoiners I know are stacking massively, like back up the truck. Like, you know, there's a lot of people like, oh, I wish the Bitcoin price would, would go back up or it's so bad. It's down 70%. And it's like, look, every single Bitcoiner I know is stacking. And on Swan, without divulging names, I mean, there's tens of millions of dollars of cash on platform waiting for the price to drop. If it goes down a little bit, these it's going to set off all kinds of triggers. Why? These are Bitcoiners. They know what they own. They know what's happening here. And because the amount of Bitcoin is so low, the amount for sale, like historic amounts of Bitcoin have come off the exchanges over the last, I guess, month, two months. Historic amounts. We're at all-time lows of the amount that's actually available for purchase. So if you think of the, the overall systemic state, right, it's, it's in a precursor position to, to a phase transition. What could that be? Well, anything. Any player that comes in, the next Michael Saylor, the next, any, I mean, Michael Saylor is one dude. You realize there's tens of thousands of companies that are like MicroStrategy. There's a crap ton of them in the world. It could be any one of these guys that comes in and is, and is the snowflake that sets off the avalanche. Yeah, I really like the idea of, of the phase transition. I think that makes a lot of sense because I think Bitcoin is this one asset where you have the base of holders that are willing to hold through 70, 80, 90% drawdowns, which is fairly unprecedented. And then they're also not willing to sell when the price does like 2x. Like it's got to go like 10x. And then you see like the marginal, you know, 20% of them end up moving their coins like on chain. You can see it. And then they're like, okay, maybe that's kind of the top. And then it comes back down. It's crazy how like the extreme volatility of Bitcoin kind of like builds this base of like extremely dedicated hodlers. Yeah. And I, my understanding, this is like my very first Bitcoin bear where I was a holder of Bitcoin. Um, like apparently a lot of people get burned with shit coins and become hardcore Bitcoiners. Some of them will may not, may, may never touch the space again, but whatever inevitably happens apparently through these cycles is tons of new Bitcoiners are born People who figure it out, I call it the one-way door. You know, you walk in the door, there's no walking back out. Once that light bulb goes on, once you see what it is, you can't unsee it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was one of those people. <laughs> I didn't yeah. understand what the space was. And then during the 2018 bear market, I hopefully I figured it out. We'll see. <laughs> um, I think this is a great conversation. I know the audience is, is going to love it. Um, where do you want to send people listening to this after, like, your Swan or your website sure. or your Twitter. Yep. You can check out swanbitcoin.com if you're interested in the company. You could follow me on Twitter at, at, at Alex Stanzik. That's S-T-A-N-C like Charlie, Z like Zebra, Y like Yankee, K like Kilo. Um, and then if you want to check out our pod, we do uh, Cafe Bitcoin every single morning. And it's on iTunes and Spotify. Just look for Cafe Bitcoin. Awesome. Everybody go check that out. Alex, thanks for coming on. This is awesome. You bet, man. Thanks for having me.